Today I welcome Kate Windsor, Head of School at Miss Porter School in the USA. In this episode, we discuss why we need more women in leadership, the importance of girls' education today, the relevance of competency-based learning, and more future school thinking. I want to talk about Miss Porter's because Miss Porter's School was founded in 1843 by Sarah Porter to educate girls. What was Sarah Porter's vision for education? She was a disruptor, um, which is funny when you think about a woman um, in 1843. She was surrounded by brothers who were being educated at the highest level, and she didn't have access in the same way to that education. And I think fundamentally, she was a curious person, but she also imagined that her life and the lives of girls and women would be very different if they had access to the type of education that her brothers had, and thus began her work to disrupt the system for girls by creating her own. And do you think that um, what she founded the school on is still relevant today? Oh, gosh. I mean, I say within our legacy lies our future, right? So we stand on her shoulders. And the same thing holds true today, although I would argue that it's even more pressing, right? So if we had spoken, I don't know, six months ago before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, some of the other glaring barriers to success that we continue to throw in front of women, despite the fact that they have access to education, couldn't be more relevant or more compelling. You could have an excuse. You could have an excuse previously when women weren't credentialed, weren't experienced to reasons why there were wage gaps or barriers to leaderships of power, you know, leadership positions, power and authority. There's no excuse today. What we're seeing, maybe not so much in America, but so many other parts of the world, is that single-sex boys' schools are slowly declining and they're becoming more co-educational as a direction, yet we're not seeing the same in the UK for girls-only education. Is that the same and why is that got more longevity and stickiness for girls' education than boys' only? I think, interestingly enough, in the US, the boys' schools started accepting girls to solve a financial problem not actually because they believed in co-education, right? So we referred to the co-ed schools as boys' schools that have invited girls in as guests. And so I think the question is the why behind it. And the why behind it is it's oftentimes not rooted in either a commitment to co-education or a desire to provide an equitable education for girls and women. Yeah, do you know, I've never looked at it that way. Yet all the examples that I can immediately recall are exactly driven that that way. It's not driven on the why, the purpose. It's driven on the opportunity, the revenue. The outcomes are very much the same in the sense that I have two boys and I was looking at schools for the boys, decided I would look at the notable alums that came out of the co-ed schools that they had applied to, thinking it would shed light on a good match. And it was fascinating because... It didn't actually illuminate where they should go to school, where the match, but it illuminated why Miss Porter School. So all of the schools had been co-educational for about 50 years. And yet when you look at the list of notable alums that were coming out or they were choosing the highlights, let's, I mean, I don't know. I didn't interrogate the thinking behind the list. There are very few girls and women. So if the solution for girls and women is a co-education, so they learn to be with men to be leaders in a co-ed or a diverse environment, the co-ed schools are not delivering on that. And how do you think Miss Porter's is different from all of these other schools, apart from the girls-only angle on education? We've continued to be bold and live our mission. 
So, you know, we say that at Miss Porter School, we prepare young women to be informed, bold, resourceful, ethical, global citizens. We expect our graduates to shape a changing world. And we're very intentional about literally going word for word and saying, okay, um, let's look at our budget. Is it our mission and numbers? Are we allocating our money in a way that affirms that a student can graduate with these preparations? So a perfect example will be, I didn't think girls could be prepared to shape a changing world if they hadn't seen the world. Committed 12 years ago to every student having an international experience as part of her graduation requirement and inclusive in the tuition. So it's not a pay to play in this quarter school. And we've continued for the, you know, year over year to say, what does it look like to ensure that girls are informed? So think at Miss Porter's, we think as much about learning as we do teaching. So what do girls need to learn? And what is evidence that a girl actually has learned something? Yeah, you talk about sort of competency-based mastery learning at Miss Porter's. What exactly is that? So I tell the girls all the time, when I was their age and I was in high school and I went to very rigorous high school and I was very successful in school, I loved school. In the AP chemistry class, we started each class taking a quiz in the periodic table. They would uh, cover that up that was hanging on the wall and we'd have to fill it in, you know, sort of the first 10, the next 10, the next 10. AP Western Civ final involved taking a map and like filling in, um, you know, they put a date on the world map and you'd have to decide whether it was called Mesopotamia or the Fertile Crescent or those sorts of things. I learned a lot and have an incredible capacity to get the facts and figures down, but I was never asked to use any of that information to do anything. There was a huge gap between what I knew and what I could do and evidence of that. So for us, uh, we are focused on skills as opposed to content in terms of teaching and learning. But we have a rich exploration of content that comes by teaching interdisciplinary way. So a perfect example, I talked about the international experience. Students um, most recently came back from France. They took a class called History of Cities, Past, Present, and Future. They went to France to look at a variety of cities. So they're exploring everything from architecture to environmental science to politics, geography, language. And they were asked to bring all those things together in those moments, as opposed to what we traditionally do, which is have people sit and do recitation, sing happy birthday in French, right? That's what you were asked to do, as opposed to explore a city on your own using French as a target language. Very different experience. And do you think that is Miss Porter's unique in this approach to curriculum content versus skills? You talked about the, you know, the experience firsthand. Is it unique to you in the US or are other schools adopting this or doing this themselves? And have you learned or borrowed things from other schools that you know, a lot of people talk about it. So the Hawkins School, for example, is the location of the mastery transcript and mastery learning. That's where those ideas first came. And yet our faculty just presented at the Mastery uh, Learning Symposium, the head of the Hawkins School said, can you come and help me implement this in my school? So his idea, we're implementing. I think over time, you've seen progressive education with this idea of doing as a way of learning. We've taken it so that, you know, John Dewey and, and experiential education, progressive education, we have some of those components, but we actually have it's different in the sense that there's a very explicit skill set that our students are expected to master. And it's the bringing together of the doing and the skill acquisition 
that I think is unique. I think it's very clear why we had 50 educators here on campus yesterday to hear from our teachers, our students, to see it in action. And I think the reason why other schools desire to do it but don't implement it is because it really takes change at all levels at the same time. So we changed our schedule and calendar, our curriculum, and the way that we provide feedback all simultaneously. And previously, you know, we worked on the schedule, but then the curriculum didn't fit. We worked on the curriculum, but we didn't have the feedback loops. You have to sort of go for it. And other schools, for lots of different reasons, aren't willing to do that. Yeah, you're right. Change is painful. It's difficult. I hear that, but I feel like educators love to talk about that and claim that and um, use that as a reason why not. And yet, as I said to some educators yesterday um, who are visiting, I said, I had a knee replacement in 1987 by, you know, a top surgeon, right? It involved a very large incision. You know, my entire year was disrupted. I was in the hospital for a week. It was great and horrible at the same time. A colleague of mine just received a hip replacement. She was in and out of the hospital in a single day. She went in the morning. She came back in the afternoon. A week later, she was up and walking, you know, without assistance. Why? Because when you know better, you must do better. So if you go to the doctor, you know, an orthopedist and say, I need, you know, a knee replacement and hip replacement. And they said, okay, well, here's what, you know, you need six months recovery. People be like, what are you talking about? You expect your doctor to use the most, you know, current research, the most current technique and focus on your, the outcome of you. Not like it's really hard for teachers to do this. You can't say the doctor, oh, it's just too hard for the doctor to learn how to use those tools. How come educators can say it's too hard? How can educators say it takes too much energy? How come educators can say that? But we say that over and over again. And instead, you know, excellence in education is tenure. How long have you been doing it? Not how well you've been doing it. How long have you been doing it? What is the average tenure of the faculty at your school? And the canon, stuck in the canon, as opposed to saying, this is new and we need that. So, you know, it may be hard, but as an educator, I'm not going to let myself or my faculty off the hook. I believe in their capacity to do what's best for kids. Yeah. And it's our duty. I always say it's our duty as educators to ensure that we are preparing these young men and women to go out and make a difference in the world. Yeah. David Brooks said yesterday, this week in the New York Times, this is a crisis. Democracy is imploding. Global warming is seeing dramatic impact on the way we live. The future is not great. If we look ahead, we need young people who are prepared to solve these problems not young people that are prepared to talk about the past or fill in the, you know. Yeah, to learn content by rote. You know, I've, I've got four kids and my wife and I are tired of them learning about the Tudors at the age of 10. Other things have happened apart from the Tudors at age 10. Where we get to the fourth child, it's just like, really? I'm sure there's some more modern history that could be relevant to these kids. So I'm with you on change. And this is why it's great having you on there. You are not just a provocator of ideas and change. You're actually an agent of change. And that's great to see. And I don't think we should let schools or educators off the hook at all. We're doing a huge injustice to the young people and the generations that are trailing us if we do not make change now. We've talked about it for decades now. And technology is it's exaggerated or sped up and expedited what we need to do. But we've almost let off the hook by going, I think technology can solve this. And I don't think technology can solve it. I think it can enable things, but it's the human element of change and recognizing how we change a society that's going to make a difference. I mean, I love your model. And do you think it's easy to package it up? Interesting, you're talking about educators coming and listening to it. 
But as you say, many will go away and go, oh, that feels, I think I've got the bind, or that feels like a lot of work. I'm happy just to, for status quo, someone else's problem. Is it easy? I mean, you, you can package this up and go, Look, we've done it. Here's the roadmap. Here's some things you're going to encounter. Here's the difficult things. Don't be think it's all rosy. Could you and have you wrapped it up and said, look, if anyone's interested, here's a plan? I mean, I believe in a rising tide. And so I don't feel sort of proprietary on what we're doing or else we wouldn't bring educators in and to share that. So I think it's a straightforward exercise to make those changes. And increasingly, as a a leadership team that's done this, we're thinking of ways that we can engage other educators to replicate it. So we're very interested in in replication, and we think it's straightforward. It's a great thing as a brand as well to be able to elevate and show it and go, we've done it. Why don't you leverage from this and go off and do it yourselves? I also think that for independent schools or fee-charging schools, there is this paradoxical notion that increasingly people don't want to pay for the education we provide because it's not distinct and they can get it someplace else. Then people are fearful of offering something else because what if the things that you are offering, at least we have some people that are paying for it, right? And so there's this model, if more people knew, then they would buy it. And so I think one of the advantages of being out in front is that we've taken the leap and people are buying it. People, parents are very enthusiastic about the product and what it means for their children. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I've read that you've got, and I've seen that you've got the Porter's Voices blog, is where you share lots of your stories of your curricular innovation. How did that come about? How do you keep that updated? We feel a responsibility to model our mission statement. I say to the students, we expect our graduates to shape a world that must change, even though it's the real line is shape a changing world. We're talking a lot as a leadership team about the ways in which we can share what we're doing. So the blog is just one way where our chief academic officer can document and share that information. I do a lot of speaking nationally and internationally about the work that we're doing as a way of bringing educators in. And most recently, as I shared, we just welcomed uh, 50 educators from across the country to really just see it in action because I can talk about it, the chief academic officer can talk about it, but having educators speak directly with students and teachers who are experiencing it was very powerful. I want to talk about the link between women in leadership and girls' schools. What does the data of women in leadership tell us about single-sex education? I think we can start, which I don't like to do, (laughs) but start with what we know isn't working. So co-ed, when you look at the numbers, so let's just say quantitatively, if you look at things like wage gaps, you know, 50 years ago, we had Title IX, which said that women should have access to the same opportunities that boys and men did, mainly focused on education. And at that time, we said to American women, the reason you're not in positions of power and authority, uh, the reason that you don't have the same opportunities is you're not credentialed enough. So we're going to make sure that you have access to the same education that boys and men do. So we're just celebrating 50 years of Title IX. Take a guess at how many colleges and universities are out of compliance 
with Title IX in any given year? I'm going to give you a percentage. I'm going to go 70% out. Right. More than 90% of colleges and universities are out of compliance with Title IX in any given year. And guess how many? The penalty for being out of compliance is withdrawal of federal funds. So over the last 50 years, take a guess at how many colleges and universities have had a withdrawal of federal funds. Um, zero. Exactly. Good news in the midst of that is that women are receiving more college degrees than men. This has created a huge panic, right? It's statistically barely significant, single digits, but they are, right? So you give women access, they took that opportunity. They also have the greatest share in the U.S. of student loans. So they graduate with huge burden, but they're graduating with a college degree. The wage gap, women are paid less than men for doing the same work, even when they have the same credentialing. The access in terms of women, you know, being CEOs continues to persist. No change, no statistically significant change. Access to venture capital, no change. You name it, no change. Women did what we told them to do. They took on all this debt. Now they have no access. So for us, it's about let's actually, instead of saying you can do and be anything you want to be, let's talk about what it means to be the only person. Let's build our own network. The All Boys Network has not welcomed in girls and women across this country. The idea that we can actually say it takes more than just getting a fine education. It takes more than just desiring, you know, because we blame the pipeline. Well, girls and women don't really want that. As girls and women work harder to navigate the system, we continue to undermine them. You know, here's a perfect example of this in play. My husband's a clinical psychologist. So before Title IX, psychology was primarily a male-dominated field. High levels of pay associated with that. As soon as insurance came into the mix, low levels of pay, reimbursements. It becomes what I call a pink field. Majority of psychologists are now women, not men. How do we prepare women? And it's the three things I would say, stereotype threat. You're not good at this. You can't be good at this. What is that? Role continuity. This is what it looks like to be the president of the United States, to be a CEO. And then imposter syndrome, feeling like because you don't have a network, you can't actually do it. And do you think there are any industries or sectors that are, there must be some shining lights. There must be some that are gone, do you know what, we're really trying to get this right. There will always be the traditional networks that you've said in industries that have taken a long time, ridiculously long time to change. But there must be some industries that you can highlight. That have changed? It depends on what you're trying to achieve. So many more women are psychologists than there were there. So you see total shift. Many more women are. But you're talking about reimbursement in terms of remuneration, aren't you? So then you... But you're not getting that. So are there any fields where women are at par or exceeding men? No, no. I mean, you see all these when you peel back the dynamic. So women, for example, in the financial industry, they're not running P&Ls. They're not running money. You know what they're doing? HR, marketing, business development. They may be a VP in a financial institution. They are receiving a much lower remuneration and the opportunity for growth. You look in the law field. So more women than men graduate from law school, right? Because that's what we're told we could do. The percentage of women who are partners in law firms. So you might have a law firm that has many more women than they did once upon a time. They're not law partners. 
who wants to be working as hard as the men and not have the opportunity? So, you know, this is what, you know, keeps me up at night because people feel like there must be progress. There must be celebration. There must be. Um, there are. I think women know better. But now, you know, you're seeing even a more dramatic in the U.S. I mean, who would think that we expect a 30% decline in women graduating from college as a result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade? No access to abortion? No access to declining access to birth control? I mean, these are catastrophic moments when you think about girls and women and, and to a mother of two boys, frankly. The world is not better for them either. And then you've got the flip, as you say, you get to be a mum of two boys. I've got two boys and two girls. I grew up in a house full of three brothers. My mum worked in an all-girls school as the antidote for having a house full of men. How do you think that single-sex education will prepare girls for these leadership opportunities? Is it almost like a right now that we need to protect this? We need to give them that, I suppose, that support, that foundation, confidence, and those skills that you're developing. So they can go out there and make the change. And they're not going to get that if they go to co-ed or they're not going to get as much of it if they go to co-ed. So, you know, I'll go back to the three constructs of so stereotype threat. So if you say to somebody, and we have to be careful about our language here. So for many years, people would say she needs a girl's school. So there is a deficit that is relieved. You know, if you're a strong student, if you're capable, you're well suited for a co-ed school, but she needs a girl's school. But really saying it is a different experience when girls and women are learning together. The greatest number of requests in the curriculum at Ms. Porter School is for a STEM class, uh, science, math, technology, and entrepreneurship. And so these are classes and fields dominated by men. Having a classroom full of girls where they're expected to succeed, expected to perform at the highest level, removes that stereotype threat or removes that role continuity that this is not what girls do. It is what girls do in Miss Porter's school. So to leave and head into college and university, having had that experience makes a big difference, both cognitively and emotionally. And girls are better and differently prepared. They also are launched into a network of other women who are waiting to bring them in and both mentor them and sponsor them, bring them to the table and say, I got here and now I'm going to bring you here. How do we avoid too much? I don't know. It's polarization between the sexes because again, I've seen a lot of very successful women-only companies where they've gone the opposite way and gone, we're just employing women. That in itself sends out a message. Is that a good thing? Is that just what we need right now? Like We just need them to be out there and going, look, we're just going to do this because this is the only way. No, no, no. And I think people pick that polar, you know, we live in a time that's highly hyperpolarized. The solutions are co-created and it's what's good for human beings. It's what's good for children, what's good for people. So the things that, as I said, you know, the, the lack of access to birth control and abortion or reduced access to birth control and abortion in the United States, that's not good for men or for women. Young people need to control around that. A woman doesn't want an unplanned pregnancy. And her partner doesn't either, right? <laughs> it throws it all up into the air. So, so many of the barriers, I don't believe in a pie and there are only so many slices. I believe in growth and productivity. And if we're all able to grow and produce at the highest level, then families are stronger and better. Businesses are stronger and better. And the world is stronger and better. So I believe in this idea that we can all come up and be together. 
sometimes I push back and say, well, do we need all girls businesses, all women businesses? Most businesses, most boards of Fortune 500s are all male, right? So like you're talking about spitting into the wind in the same way. Like, why not? I don't see it as competition. I say, why not? Nobody gets themselves tied up when we say we have an all male you know, company or we have all male board or we have all male that. So like when we pick these one-offs and say like, you know, isn't that, you know, moving in the wrong direction? I'm like, try it a little bit. We need balance and we don't even have any of that. So what does it look like? And I do think that sometimes different identity groups need to take care of themselves if others aren't taking care of them. I want to kind of get on to um, your experience, Kate. You've been a head of school for 25 plus years. You've got a huge amount of experience as an educator. The changes you must have seen in those 25 years must have been enormous, but there must be some commonalities or some things that maybe haven't changed. I'm just really interested to get your lens on what do you think has changed the most and what do you think really hasn't changed? And that's good. I mean, it's two things. One, to have spent, you know, this is my 25th year as a head of school and I've been an educator for much longer. And then to have boys that are almost 10 years apart. So I have one son that graduated from high school at 2012 and one in 2021, right? So 2012, went to school, to boarding school without a phone, without social media, without all of those things. Number two went with those things. You know, my first job, I didn't have, and I talk about this in terms of, you know, I didn't have email or computer or all sorts of things. So I'm all for technology. I think it can amplify all of the opportunities that we have in education in very positive ways. I also know that more is not always more. And how do we manage that? The change in terms of the demands on educators have increased, particularly when you think about athletics, right? I think athletics are a really important part of teaching kids competition, how to win, how to lose, how to prep for something, how to get feedback in the public domain, right? You missed the foul shot. You hit the goal. You did the foul, like all of those are things are great. Biggest change when I was a coach 30 years ago, you know, was the 80s, right? So remember AIDS, bloodborne pathogens. We were trained so that if somebody got a bloody nose, we knew what to do. Put on the gloves, do that. Fast forward to today, we know all sorts of things about training, about concussions, about all of this. Just to be able to coach a team involves way more technology. You look at it, the classroom teacher right? We used to teach our classes, put the kids in study hall and go work on our lessons. Now we come back and we have email from the department chair, the head of school. We're going to jump on a webinar for professional development. We're going to respond to parents who have questions and we're asking to join in partnership. There isn't that evening to reflect, to plan and prepare. There's a whole nother set of work that comes. Do I believe in communication and partnership with parents? Absolutely. Do I think it's wonderful that our professional development, we can get online and it can be timely. And we have access to experts that we didn't. When you actually had to go to a conference, you actually had to find the book, you had to order the book, you had to read the book. I mean, there are all these things that are both wonderful and take up a lot of time that make it harder to be an educator. And I think, you know, again, I will say, like, when you know better, you need to do better. And yet, I don't know how you do it all. Yeah. And you can't do it all. I think time is the one thing that we're squeezing out and we're finding it harder to find the time, the right time through disruption, through technology, through this 24-7, everything is accessible, available. We as parents have got to do a better job. But again, we're caught in this hamster wheel of probably not being the best role models. 
and then they go to school and, and educators themselves have got to be upskilled and go, actually, I need to be relevant. I need to understand why these girls are on their phones uploading selfies or doing this or wondering why, you know, they got these comments or why they're so addicted to TikTok reels or whether it's to YouTube shorts. You know, these are constantly evolving and all the, the big providers out there, everyone's just dangling for attention. So all this has become now is it's they're fighting for attention and the biggest catastrophe is the mental health piece. That to me is the biggest worry. It's all this great stuff with technology being an enabler and it can be this stuff. That's great. And you adopt it in your school. But then how do we make sure that we, you know, we are mentally strong, give ourselves time? I still need to learn and I'm trying to bring it with my kids and it's not easy. Time and choice are the two things that are colliding. We have way more choices than we had. There's also, certainly with the students at Miss Porter School and our parents and our faculty, that you can make the right choice. So you perseverate on all sorts of decisions that actually probably don't demand so much thinking. And again, I think a very stark, when I grew up, one or two toothpaste, you use them to brush your teeth, right? And it was no big deal. You could spend a half an hour, 45 minutes in the toothpaste aisle these days trying to decide you know, all of the various components that you might need around toothpaste. And yet, you know, a dentist would probably tell you flossing is way more important when it comes down to dental health than toothpaste and whether or not you brush your teeth. Most people don't floss. And if you're like me, you overpay and spend a lot of time trying to find just the right toothpaste. So, you know, I think those sorts of things can be replicated over and over and over again where we're spending time on things that don't matter and not actually doing what's best personally and for your mental health and for, you know, that. So, yeah. And I love it. I think time versus choice. I like that as just too easy access as framing. I talk about content shock a lot. It is, it's just this overwhelming burden. And you can feel guilty. There's a burden if you don't do your research, if you don't pay attention, if you're not, you know, that somehow you didn't get the best deal or you didn't get the best, like whatever it is. There's so much. I'm going to throw you one final question as we wrap. If you were to look into your crystal ball and look at the next 25 years, what would the future of education look like for you, say, in 2050? What would be the same? What would be different? How would it be? So I am optimistic because I'm just an optimistic person. I hope we can bet on our young people, young teachers, young educators, and listen to the voices of our students and have them particularly in this moment of great contrast between the ways in which we were educated for the world that we lived in through the lens of the world that we're living in now and the world that they will. We need actually our young people to be advising us and to be sharing with them and provide clarity in ways that I don't think previous generations did. And so I hope that we will listen to our students and I hope that we will bet on our young educators who I think are uniquely prepared to really lead the change that is necessary. And again, I'll go back to some, you know, what I said previously is that in academia, we are very, very much focused on tenure and successes of the past. And I think we have to be focused on what the potential needs and successes of the future are going to look like and see that from a very positive, from an opportunistic way as opposed to one of feeling uncertain about or like we don't know enough we know enough to ask the questions and who to ask the questions to 
You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.